The episode today is a replay from Fringe Legal Edge. This is something that is broadcasted live on Fridays at 11 a.m. Chicago and 5 p.m. UK. Just in case you're not able to make those times, we wanted to present the conversation for your complete entertainment and enjoyment. Before we get started, if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to the Fringe Legal Newsletter. This is a weekly roundup of interesting things. Every Sunday, I send out an exclusive email with three to five of the coolest things we've explored that week. It could include exclusive content, sneak peek at future projects, books, articles, or new hacks. The emails are available only if you subscribe to the newsletter, and more than 530 people receive it every single week. You can join up at fringelegal.com slash newsletter. It's completely free. Thank you everyone for joining us today. This is Fringe Legal Edge. If this is the first time you're joining us, this is a show where every week I speak to experts and leaders about various ways that you can give your practice an edge. Today, I am delighted to have with me a special guest, Alice Spencer. Uh, Al is the director and co-founder of Altruistic Ventures, a boutique management consultancy that provides specialized services to law firms and in-house legal teams globally. He has over 20 years of senior management experience, having worked with technology services team for law firms, legal tech vendors, and most recently, director of multiple legal consultancies. And we'll get into some of those things today, but his experience spans from technology strategy, business change advice, especially for firms that are going through quite significant change, which is many firms at this time. I am sure Al and the wider team are extremely busy. So firstly, Al, thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Did I miss anything crucial in the introduction? I think that was fine. Welcome to my kitchen. <laughs> One of the nice things is I get to see the insides of everyone's house. Uh, <laughs> so we have just about half an hour and there's a few things I want to get to. And just, I guess, to outline the, the hopeful things that we'll get to cover today is certainly talking about your perspective and your experiences in what's going on. And I'm going to put that into the state of the union bucket. Basically, most firms hit pause on a lot of different things at the beginning of the year. So we'll talk about how that went, uh, how it went maybe not so well for some others, around the general hygiene and this concept of operational excellence or trying to achieve operational excellence within law firms. So we'll keep it focused on the law firm context today. And I do want to spend some time on a couple of the uh, projects, I'm going to call them, but there may be a better label for it uh, that Altby has, uh, especially the grandly named Legal Meth Lab and some <laughs> of the work that you guys have been doing with Taylor Wessings that you've announced most recently. Sure, sure, absolutely. So yeah, you're absolutely right. I think the handbrake on many law firms at the beginning of this year was absolutely pulled very hard and, and we've seen a, a massive uh, slowdown across the, both legal and in-house counsel. Interestingly, though, the in-house council have, have certainly managed to achieve a little more gains in that space during this 2020 uh, pandemic. But we have, on a lighter note, noticed that the thawing out of law firms, particularly in HPAC, who have largely dodged a bullet in, on the COVID front, ramping back up. But we're also seeing the markets across EMEA rapidly getting back to normal. And I think that's Given the number of months that have passed, I think just keeping the lights on for the first few months was was absolutely critical. It, it showed from our perspective the full spectrum of 
business continuity across different firms and who, who was capable of just flicking a switch and going for it and those that were just struggling to get people back into the workforce for a number of months. And it, it, it is very much a spectrum in that regard and it's, it's size agnostic. So small firms were very agile, big firms were very agile, small firms were, were tragically understaffed and almost went to the wall on it. Yeah, there is a lot to consider, but we are seeing proper re-engagement and also they're realising that this is the new norm and with the new norm comes the fact that your the program that you've put on hold has to come back online and things have got to progress. And so they're, they're, they're rapidly realising that the program of work must march on. I'm actually interested to hear that the, the size in this instance is, it wasn't a factor for the business, but what do you think? Because every, no one really knew what was going to happen. Mm. So what were some of the factors that allowed those firms that, let's say, thrived in this environment to do so, and some that came very close to falling apart and under the hood and the, the bravado that's projected outside. Sure. You know, what are some of the driving factors there? So I think a lot of them, so for small firms that have got multi-jurisdictional regions, they're, they're often more geared for remote working because they do essentially work remotely and they do meetings online remotely. Those that are single office, mid-tier firms who have got a historical relevance to have people in the office and bums on seats equals productivity, some of those just weren't geared for it and they just they struggled to rapidly roll out you know, the lives of lots of teams and, and understand their client needs remotely. And they're very traditional law firms. So that mid-tier single office firm, generally speaking, was predominantly hit the most but those the small mid-tier firms that, that do have multiple offices they were quite agile and some of the big some of the big firms that are, that are multi-jurisdictional also had issues because of a, a number of factors depending on the firm but a lot of them there's a, a rapid lateral hiring approach so they've got disparate systems and as a result when you throw everyone back into their houses those systems sometimes don't talk to each other and we find we found that was a contributing issue to productivity. Yeah, and I know when we briefly spoke of preparing for this conversation, uh, one of the things that you mentioned was, at least from what you've seen, the in-house teams particularly well in, in this instance. So do you think it's because of different factors or just because they were more run, lack of a better word, as a business uh, compared to most law firms, that they had prepared themselves and had better business continuity plans in place? Yeah, I think given that they're a cog in the, in the chain of the corporate that they sit within, I think that they, the, the mothership actually probably have more structure and governance around what could and couldn't do. It's interesting because historically in-house, I always equate a law firm with a profit centre in-house to a cost centre. They're two very different strategic alignments as to what, what makes money and what costs money. And in-house generally smell, run on the smell of an oily rag, whereas law firms are very profitable. But... What we found is I think that given the opportunity they had, they, they cracked on and because they had the structure and governance at the top, they were less disruptive. Yeah, and I think that's important and certainly at least one of my thesis is potentially the in-house teams, because they are a cost center, you naturally work to streamline your processes and systems first rather than just you know, throw people at the problem uh, as right. it often happens within a law firm and therefore you do reap the rewards when the resources for everybody else becomes tighter than you know there's becomes a more equal playing field in in some ways so true 
Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you mentioned that you're starting to see, certainly within Asia Pack, things are starting to pick back up. What are, and I think, at least from my perspective, mostly because I'm sick of hearing the word new normal, it seems more like just a separate pathways, right? So people pause what they were doing and they prioritize other work. That Because I think a lot of firms did have this kind of workflow in their plan. They wanted people to at least be capable of working remotely. No one wanted to actually have people working remotely because, as you said, the bumps on seats equal productivity. Yeah, yeah. As they are starting to reevaluate their priorities, what kinds of projects or themes or anything else are, are they starting to focus on first? What, what do they prioritize first? Yeah, so I think they're trying to get the, the base plate finesse now. I think that the, the, the major systems that I've got underpinning the firm always systemically are the driving force of the business. And, um, they allow visibility, they allow decision make, effective decision-making based on the fact that you can actually uh, understand how to interpret the data. But what we're seeing, certainly from the APAC or from Australia region, is a big push for the ERP system. There's document management, practice management, exchange, and all those basic ERP systems that firms rely on so heavily. Those that are falling behind in that space are now rapidly coming back on board. And they're, they're big-ticket items. They're, they're very expensive processes and implementations that, that law firms have got to understand that this is a 10-year project and if you do it incorrectly, it's a 10-year mistake <laughs> and very hard to wind back if it's done incorrectly. So it's, and we're often called into remediation projects around poor implementation, but more often than not in that space, it's around assumption-based implementation. So we're seeing, we're seeing people make assumptions on behalf of the business as to how the, how the system should be implemented without actually engaging actively and with the depth and breadth across the business as to what the system should look like and how it should interact with them. That is the biggest number one foible that we see is the assumption-based implementation. Best practice or best read is not necessarily a, an individual firm's goal. They have got very specific requirements and without teasing those requirements out effectively, you're not going to get them the system that they want, which I suppose, and I know we'll talk about this in a minute, but which is really where the Legal Meth Lab was spawned from, was our ability to have a, have a toolkit to, to interpret and solicit information from a business in a very empathetic way that engages all manner of the firm because it's surprising what you find in a particular practice group, a secretary over there that just knows exactly what's going on that previously wouldn't have been consulted that can improve the workflow for that practice group exponentially based on correct solicitation methodologies. Yeah, yeah it's, a, and, it's, a big, uh, it's a big one. And we'll definitely get to Legal Math Lab because I do want to dive mm. into that in, in some detail. But as I look at law firms and I hear probably as much as you do that, oh, we are very unique. We're more akin to brain <laughs> surgeons than we are any other business and you can't really codify what we do. And yep. Whether that's true or not, we can debate that till the cows come home. But one thing that's for <laughs> yeah, certain is if you look at yeah, if we look at the law firm as a business and you focus yeah. on becoming operationally excellent, you're really only trying to achieve two things. How do you retain the clients you have today? How do you make them stickier? And uh -huh. how do you get new revenue? How do you attract more clients? It is literally yeah. just those two things. Everything else just feeds into that and that's it. Yeah, that's right. I would probably add one more to that, and that's the leverage yeah. model. So that's actually mm -hmm. being, being more profitable in, in an approach to, which comes down to automation. So once you've nailed a process and the people within that process, 
you can leverage down and make it pro- more, more, far more profitable. And we, we work closely with firms, but also with their clients to actually engage in, in our labs that it's slightly controversial and you'll find that the lawyers get quite, quite squirmy when they think of their clients in a lab context with them showing inefficiencies that they are producing. But it's on the flip side, and this is the, the point to the, to both sides is that what you're trying to do is improve the service delivery of that piece of work to the client, but also hopefully make it more efficient, hopefully make it more profitable for the firm, but cheaper for the client. So it's a win-win, a proper win-win. And once you've got them across the line to say that's the approach, they generally let the guard down and the client comes on board and we go through a number of methodology and we brainstorm and solution the problems that they're having. And generally speaking, those clients aren't going anywhere because they've got a proper approach and they'll often cookie cut that approach to other areas and, and go through other practice groups with that panel firm or that individual firm. But it also gives a differentiation for that firm around what they can achieve for tendering and things like that. So they actually win a lot more business as a result. Yeah, and I assume the, the clients have buy-in into the process at that stage. So they do have something vested yep. to say, and whether it's just for sure or it has practical value, it doesn't really matter at that it. stage. Yeah. And the, the interesting thing about the, the leverage model you, you mentioned, I completely agree with you, is it requires a future state thinking, which is so yep. difficult for the partners and other lawyers yes. to do. And not because they're not capable of it, but if you put a logical hat on, as a business, a law firm is generally very profitable. They're doing a great job. And yeah. what incentive do they have to want to disrupt that for yeah. Yeah. some un- uncertain thing? That's right. I've got the down payment for my second yacht. Why do I need to change? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, but I think it's important yeah, yeah. because you, you have to identify those individuals who are able to see far enough, enough ahead to say, look, yes, we are doing well and we have been doing well for 20, 30, 50, 100 years, whatever it might be, but there is a changing tide coming and it may not be disruptive. And the funny thing about disruption is it hits you in the face as soon as you turn the corner. You don't get a warning. Um, It blindsides (laughs) you. Yeah, we are seeing that. And we're seeing the the global pie shrinking as well. So getting work, finding work as in-house get mature and they actually pull back on their panel work. They're doing it all themselves. So that's a, a massive shrink in what uh, general practice law firms have to deal with. I think the savvy ones out there understand that, that they do need to change. And those that are resting on their laurels saying, my profit margin is just fine. Thank you very much. Well, the, the cliff's coming. <laughs> very much. And I, I think this is probably a good segue to talk about uh, Legal Meth Lab and some of the ways that, you know, OP helps to solve this problem. And, and the important thing, I think, and this is my assumption, so please correct me, mm. I may have this 100% mm, mm. wrong, is cool. you know, the, the best way to approach this is to set some sort of a baseline. So you go through a discovery phase to actually identify what do we need to change? Do we even need to change? You then yep. use that information to set some sort of a benchmark or a baseline, and then you work on okay, great. And now we've identified what the levers are or levers are, and then you start pushing and pulling on them. Yep. And you measure the improvement. Is that about right? Yeah, no, that's exactly right. So, yeah, there's a bunch of the rhetoric from my perspective is what's above the line and what's below the line. So, you've got operational costs below the line that you can't control, but you've got leverage model objects up there that are the levers that you can pull. And you've got to bring senior stakeholders on board, but everyone, but bring senior stakeholders on board and, and educate them on what, what levers they can pull and how and what effect that has on their practice group or the entire business. 
and that's it's a really it's a really important one because you're essentially converting a partner into a business owner as opposed to someone who just does legal work and, and getting them across the line is a difficult one because they don't really want to understand the operations of the business they just want to do legal work because that's what they've done for 20 years 30 years so bringing them on that journey and engaging with them on yes you can make 30 percent profit while you're currently doing it but you want to make 40 here's the way you can do it so, so it's a carrot rather than a stick and they generally obviously want to make more money like everyone but they most of them enjoy getting on that journey and actually wanting to be a business owner so giving them a mini mba for one of a better word and there's two types. I was just going to say, um, sorry, yeah, there's, and there's two types, right? There's, uh, from a reporting perspective, you've got operational excellence, but you've also got strategic excellence. You've got a, a BI platform for, for data to operate effectively, but you've also got an MI layer that you need to get the metrics for senior management and uh, partners to think of one as a dashboard, one as a, as a, as a table. And, and you've got to marry those two up. So when you do your business planning, strategic business planning, you've got to understand the three and five year goals of the business. And often they don't have goals, which is why that problem-solving piece is going to go into it to analyze what is it that you want to achieve? Do you want to go, do you want to focus on this? Do you not want to focus on this? And and if so, and then we solution that, and then we can get them focused on a on a three and five year plan with measurable outcomes to make sure that it's achievable. Uh, yeah, and I was smiling as you said that because it, you know, for, for what it's worth, I think a lot of firms do something along those lines. But what tends to they be try. Yeah, what tends to be missed is lots of law firms get into this. I, I guess they fall into the the chasm of creating pretty looking dashboards, but they don't really know what they're measuring, and they don't really know if something yeah, is improving, if it makes yeah. any difference whatsoever. It's just, yeah, people seem our clients love us. Sure, if you only ask the clients that keep coming back to you, then yeah, 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 yeah. No, it's just, you're absolutely spot on. Yeah, they they, they like to. Uh, Look at all the positives, but not not the stuff that slipped through the cracks, or the all the, the the panel reviews that didn't come through this year, and the rest of it. Yeah, you're absolutely right. But I think it's a simple thing. I was I can't remember where I was reading this. I was reading something about uh, Southwest Airlines, which obviously was a disruptive thing when it started a long time ago. And one of the surveys that was done by one of the U.S. departments, hmm. they canvassed people who flew to ask, well, and mostly at that stage, and this is 30, 40 years back, people mm -hmm. who were flying were all business passengers or extremely wealthy individuals because the cost of travel was so expensive. Yeah, and yeah. they just canvassed them. Do you think that regular people, all quote unquote, would like to fly? And all of them were like, no, because we don't see them flying. And yeah, you know, yeah, it's a yeah. sort of chicken and egg. It's like, okay, yeah, yeah, but if you yeah. go and ask the people that is your actual audience whether they would like to fly, then you get a completely different response altogether. Yeah, it's the exclusion of the inclusion, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah, and, and, and there, was a, there was a classic World War II plane analogy, another plane analogy, but it's a similar thing. They were <laughs> analyzing the bullet holes of, of returned aircraft um, to work out how to fortify the plane in those areas. But they weren't analyzing the aircrafts that actually didn't come home and where the weaknesses were. So it was, it was yeah. the exclusionary component that they missed. Yeah. Exactly. I think we both have a plenty of metaphors around this line. <laughs> I have a few yeah. other good ones. I'll save them for later in the conversation, perhaps. <laughs> so it, talk me through, let's go back a step. Explain to anyone who doesn't know, what is Legal Meth Lab? Because it's quite a provocative <laughs> name. I love it. What does that mean? And what does that entail? And how does that sort of tie into everything we've been talking about so far? 
Yeah, sure. So look, it was organically grown based on the fact that we believe we believe methodology is core to successful outcomes and problem solving. So it's a lateral problem solving solution, but we know it's tried and true. It's industry standard across multiple industries. So we embrace and really encourage particular methods. But what we do like to do is we like to see multiple methods being used for different problems because we don't think that it's one method for everyone. There's a purist approach to methodology that some will say, we are an agile shop and that is it, and we will never do anything other than agile. And depending on the industry, it can be it can be absolutely perfect. Manufacturing and things like that, agile is fine, right? Iterative process improvement, throw it away, it's fit for purpose. But for us, we, we are covering a, a broad spectrum of issues that we find when you introduce different approaches and different methods, you can get a, a much more accurate outcome that's much better fit for purpose for the firm or for the individual group or individual for that matter. And as a result, we grew this concept. And um, look, we've got little, little card decks. Uh, <laughs> it's all digital. We've had to adapt pretty rapidly to obviously the situation on the ground globally. So we provided you know, things like QR codes to grab the detail around the uh, particular method that you're working with. But we also find that with a purist approach to a particular method, it's, it's more textbook learning, whereas this one allows them to dabble in, dabble out. And actually, if you think of the analogy of a chef, for example, cooking a recipe, he's actually using five or six different cooking methods to achieve the components on that plate. And we feel that it's exactly the same with methodology. You might want to do this method for this particular problem, but this one suits this one, or a blend of the two. So it's it's not this purest approach. It's actually how do we best... So it's an education for the users. And we also, more importantly, is we involve the entire firm because the different lenses that different people cast on different problems is staggeringly different. So we want these methodologies to be systemic within the law firm. They're not in this little ivory tower of wizards in innovation hubs that are actually pushed outside of the business because it's too scary and lawyers won't get it. But lawyers do get it and lawyers embrace it. If it's dealt with them, if it's dealt with them properly and with a large dollop of empathy around inclusionary problem solving and lateral problem solving, they embrace it with, with open arms because it's actually a lot of the time they're frustrated because, again, assumption-based um, solutions thrown at them and they're not engaged. And so we spend an inordinate amount of time engaging with stakeholders across the firm because even in these problem projects we're having to remediate on, we've already got a lot of angry or upset people and we have to win them back over but also uh, get them to understand how we can change the system to, to benefit them or the firm at large. So yeah, there's a lot involved but yeah, we. The one thing I will say is we <laughs> assumption-based um, solutions is is one thing that legal meth just doesn't. Legal meth lab doesn't it doesn't adhere to it all. It is a journey. It's a change management journey for all staff in the business, and it does breed success. People enjoy being engaged with change, but they just systemically haven't been engaged with it. So we we take it very seriously. From what I hear from you, it sounds like a. I love the cards and I love the QR codes. I'm a big fan of QR codes because that way. You always get up-to-date information, which is kind of in, right? And the second is, it is something, you're so right. The thing that resonated most with me, there is a certain type of individual who loves the textbook education, but that's not most people. And that's not most people most of the time, even if you enjoy it. I am definitely one of those individuals, but most of the time I don't want to do that because 
I don't have time to sit there and read a 400 page textbook. <laughs> Just give me the relevant information, pique my interest, and I can go spend my own time learning yeah, the rest that's if I right. want to. That's right. And this sort of easily digestible approach is probably the best word for it. Uh, it seems yeah. useful. And yeah, to your story earlier, just getting those different voices heard is so important, not it just is. because you get the different perspectives, but also it encourages those individuals to yep. be future leaders and future contributors yep. because so many yep. of them have great ideas, but they That's just true. feel like there's no one speaking to a brick to wall, to. basically. Absolutely. Yeah, so, no, we've had some of our solutions have come blindsided us from, from a quiet secretary in corporate yeah. who just went, what about that? <laughs> Whoa, okay. They understand sometimes the nuances of it. And you do need that mix of, let's think about the, the big macro, but also think about the micro at the same time. Uh, we have about yeah, four yeah. minutes left, and I just wanted to make sure there was enough time uh, because you've just kicked off a project with Taylor Wessing that you announced publicly uh, so we can certainly talk about that one where you've got i think 40 or so people uh, i think that's probably a more practical tie into the the concept of the meth lab you want to talk a little bit about that too yeah. for sure a bit briefly it's been really wonderful that everyone's on a journey an innovation journey for want of a better word but i think that there's different levels of people who are on that um, path and taylor westing have already engaged multiple areas within the business so they've already got that oh we need multiple lenses approach which is wonderful so they're basically breaking it down into groups of eight with a client, a key, you know, one of their one of their dear and near clients that they that they've spoken to that want to engage with them on this. And yeah, they're engaged with a problem statement that's been thought of between the two, between the firm and the, and the client. And they're doing some wonderful things. I think I'm sure there'll be more press releases on their part around what's coming out of it. But we really enjoyed it. It's a full virtual lab that. We, we're very proud of and we think that the Westing are very happy with it and will continue to use it. Yeah, it's it's bold and fun new times, but we're, we, we're looking to extend the card deck with with new add-ons so that we, it'll always be a moving feast of different approaches, client-focused approaches. And so it, it's it's not a static piece. So, you know, we'll be definitely branching out in this space. And I'll have to send you a deck. I, I just yeah, I was just going to say I would love to get a, a copy or a deck to play around with. That'd be awesome. And also, I, I like the logo, so it'll be good to as a memorabilia piece. But <laughs> that's amazing. And I think what sounds really cool about that is you're not trying to rush it in. It's not just let's get all forty of them together. Let's have a one jam-packed day or like a four-hour session, and that's it. We're going to hash things out because if you're trying to solve serious problems, yeah. it will end up taking more than one day's worth of work. That's right. That's right. And we are definitely you know, the bell curve of production or productivity of numbers of participants. So a small mid-tier size, so eight to 10, is probably ideal because the quieter ones are worse, the louder ones. And when you hit the 20 plus mark, it just it's white noise by three people and everyone checks out. And to keep the engagement and energy levels, I think there's a balance act on numbers there. Yeah. I, I actually facilitated a session yesterday and I will say I have so much respect for anyone who does these regularly because a it takes a lot of energy and getting people involved it's a skill in itself keeping them for involved. sure yeah yeah keeping yeah. people engaged for any amount of time that's over half an hour is yeah. absolutely a skill alistair it's been wonderful speaking to you if people want to learn a bit more about what you guys do if they want to i know you have some videos for the legal meth lab that you recorded we do. where do people go to find that information so it's just straight to our website um, www.altruisticventures.com 
Perfect. And I know you can find Alistair on LinkedIn. So go bug him as well. And thank you everyone for joining. I look forward to receiving a card. I'm wearing a French Eagle shirt. So you sent me the card deck. I'll send you a t-shirt. I will do a swap. Thank you everyone. Speak to you next time. Thank you all. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. And I hope you enjoyed that discussion. Before you go, please share this with one other person and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcast or wherever you listen. This podcast was produced by me, Abhijat Saraswath. Paula Chrysostomu is the manager for the show and Fritti Saraswath is the content strategist. You can listen to all previous episodes and reach out to us at fringelegal.com. Thank you.